Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. So we've just been studying the trumpets one through six and seeing how God is beginning to judge the unrighteousness of the world. But what exactly is going on on the world during these trumpets? Well, let's talk about that coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles with Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. We've just been studying trumpets one through six, which is the beginning of God's judgment upon the unrighteousness on earth. So what is going on now is what we call a brief interlude. If you notice, there's a big gap from uh, the trumpets, trumpets one through six, and the seventh trumpet. In fact, there's a chapter and a half of gap. I call this interlude number two. If you remember correctly, uh, in the seals, between seal number six and seal number seven, there was also an interlude, and that was showing what was going on on earth and up, or I should say going up in heaven at the time that the seals were bringing all this destruction on earth. Well, this is a little bit different. John was up there seeing the angels blowing the trumpets, and now to catch up the action for the reader, he has to do an interlude, and he is going to show us what's been going on on earth during trumpets one through six. So again, this is just the only way that John uh, can relate what's going on in two different places at once. And these interludes is a way that we bring the action up to where everybody is at the same point before he goes on and says what happens next. And like we've talked about this before, this is a common way of doing things even in modern writing today. So let's look at this second interlude and let's see what's been going on on the earth during this time of the trumpets one through six. We're going to start reading in Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll, which he had unrolled. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but a voice from heaven called to me, keep secret what the seven thunders said, do not write it down. Then the mighty angel standing on the sea and on the land lifted his right hand to heaven, and he swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and everything in it, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, God will wait no longer, but when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. 
It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice from heaven called to me again, Go and take the unrolled scroll from the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I approached him and asked him to give me the little scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. At first it will taste like honey, but when you swallow it, it will make your stomach sour. So I took the little scroll from the hands of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but it made my stomach sour. Then he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. So the first thing we see in this interlude is John eating a very special scroll. Now, always scrolls have something to do with prophecy. And so this is going to be a prophecy that they want him to uh, you know, speak out to other people. But notice how it starts. In, in chapter 10, verse 3, we see that uh, the angel comes down and the, he hollers out something that's on his scroll, and then the seven thunders speak. Now, what the seven thunders represent, we don't know for sure, but likely it is the voice of God. And because many times it sounds uh, like thunder. If you read the Old Testament, many times when God speaks, or even in the New Testament when God spoke, a lot of people thought it sounded like thunder. So I think this is the voice of God, and he's actually telling John not to write down what, the, what he said to the angel and what the angel spoke in the prophecy. So he doesn't want that recorded. He wants it still to stay veiled. Now, this isn't unusual. The same thing happened in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel was seeing things that happened right up until this point in time in the world's history. He saw way in the future when God would uh, judge the world and bring about the millennial kingdom or the uh, restoration of the Jewish kingdom. And when he was seeing these events, the angel said, Daniel, seal the book up, for this is for a long ways down the road. So God kept things veiled until the right time that he wants his people to see it. And I think that's what's going on here. The seven thunders, the voice of God spoke something to the angel, and he was told not to record this, to keep it veiled. So obviously there's some things about the future that God still doesn't want to reveal to us so that it makes sure that we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, the second thing we see that's interesting in Revelation chapter 10 is what the angel says about the mysterious plan of God. Let's pick up uh, near the end of chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 6, near the end of verse 6, and it says this, He said, God will wait no longer, referring to the angel. The angel cries out, God will wait no longer, and now in verse 7, but when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. So here's the mighty angel that had the scroll, and he says, and he raises his hand and vows this. So he's making a proclamation that God's mysterious plan will wait no longer. It's fixing to be fulfilled. What is this mysterious plan? Well, as we'll see in the context of Revelation and also things in other parts of the Bible, I think it's safe to say that God's mysterious plan is the 
union of all the Gentile and Jewish believers into one people of God. You see, we know from studying Scripture that that's God's plan ever since the Garden of Eden. When mankind chose to sin against God, and Adam and Eve sinned against God and brought sin into the human race, we all fell, all creation fell. And we talked about that a couple of sessions ago. And we've all been affected by sin. We're born with a sin nature. And we're born with this tendency to rebel against God. And we are destined for hell. From the time that we breathe our first breath, we're destined for hell. So God didn't want that to happen. He doesn't want us to end up in hell. So he provided a way of salvation. And that plan involved he himself walking on earth as Jesus the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, the Son of God, the one true God, walked on this earth, died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, and to prove that his payment was enough, God raised him from the dead. And he used a Jewish Messiah. He used Jesus in the body of a Jewish man to do this. That goes all the way back to the promise of Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would use his lineage to bless the whole world, including the Gentiles. And we see that God's plan was to bring the Gentiles and the Jews all together in believing for one God and as one people. And we see this in the book of Acts because the gospel quickly spread to the Gentiles. And the apostle Paul was one of the ones, and Peter also was one of the ones that broke into the Gentile community with the gospel and it started spreading like wildfire. But there's other passages we can see. We'll see later on in Revelation chapter 11 that a lot of the Jewish people become uh, saved through the events that we're fixing to discuss. And in Revelation chapter 14, it talks about the worship service of the 144,000 witnesses. You know, the Jewish witnesses that were marked out earlier. Now, that indicates that Jewish people are getting saved, believing in Jesus. Also, in the book of Romans 9, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Romans 9 through 11, uh, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about how God is going to save the Jewish people, restore their kingdom, and make us one people. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11, he has a great uh, illustration of the olive tree, which is the symbol of Israel, even to this day. But, you know, they were, part of their economy was based on olive oil, and they harvested a lot of olives. And he talks about how the Gentiles were a wild olive tree that was grafted in to the good olive tree, which came from the root of Abraham. And it was signifying how Gentiles who believe in the Messiah will be saved and grafted into the tree. And so there's a great illustration there about how God's plan from the very beginning was to take the Jewish people who believe in the Messiah and whose faith has reckoned them to be righteous, just like Abraham and all the prophets and and all the patriarchs, King David and, and many of the other kings, righteous kings like Josiah, The Jewish people that believe are the olive tree, and they are declared God's people. And when Jesus walked on this earth, more and more people believed in the Messiah. 
And the church was originally in the early many years, the original days of the church, the first many years was basically a Jewish church. But as the gospel spread to the Gentiles, it became a lot of Gentiles getting saved too. And even to this day, we have Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And God's goal is to bring them all into one uh, people of God. And in Romans chapter 11, it uses the illustration of a olive tree and how we are, as Gentiles, grafted in to this olive tree as the people of God. You see, we don't replace the Jewish people. We were grafted in and made one people. Jews and Gentiles made one people of God. But there's another place Paul explains this concept. It's in the book of Ephesians. And I want to read this. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. And I want to read these few verses because it illustrates very well how God wants to bring us into one people. And I think it's important for us to understand this concept so we can better understand what's going on in the book of Revelation in these chapters. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 15. By his death, referring to Jesus, by his death, he ended the whole system of Jewish law that excluded the Gentiles. His purpose was to make peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new person from the two groups. Verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He has brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and to us Jews who were near. Now all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, may come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. We are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We who believe are carefully joined together, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also joined together as part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So there in Ephesians, we see that Paul is talking about how Jesus died on the cross, not to keep the Jewish and Gentile people separate, but to unite us and to make us one, one people. And also Paul uses the illustration of being a building, like we're being built together as separate bricks, to be one temple of God. You see, God lives within the believers. And so he's taking the Jewish people and the Gentile people and making us one people and one temple of God where he lives within us. And that is the reason that they had a physical temple in the Old Testament to show that eventually Jesus was going, his plan was to make us the temple, and he lives within every believer now. Ever since Acts chapter 2, we know this. So there is no such thing as us replacing the Jewish people. That is a false teaching called replacement theology. And a lot of people have taught that since the Jews rejected Christ, 
that the Gentiles who believe the church has replaced the Jewish people. And that is not true. Nothing could be further than, from the truth. There are Jewish believers today. There was Jewish believers in the time of the first century, in the early days of the church, and throughout the centuries. Granted, many of the Jewish people hardened their hearts over the centuries and don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. But because of what God is going to do in the last days, many of them will have their eyes opened and will realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And they will join the ranks of believers from the Old Testament and all through the first century church of all the Jewish people that believe in Jesus and believe in the Messiah. And because of their belief in God, have been declared righteous. So God's plan is not to replace the Jewish people, but to take the Gentiles and the Jews and make us one people, one temple of God, one olive tree from the root of Abraham, one people of God that he uses to bring light to the world. That is God's plan. That is his mysterious plan from the very beginning. And it's talked about in the book of Ephesians very clearly and in the book of Romans as well. So now there's a third thing that's very interesting in the chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. And that's when John actually eats of the scroll. And again, uh, this is very symbolic saying that he is going to take this message and consume it, meditate on it, and then preach it to others. We see this very same thing about a prophet eating a scroll, we see it in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we read this. The voice said to me, Son of man, eat what I am giving you. Eat this scroll, then go and give its message to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Eat it all, he said. And when I ate it, it tasted as sweet as honey. So here God is giving Ezekiel a prophecy for the Jewish people back in the Old Testament, back after Babylon had taken over and destroyed the temple, and he is preaching to the refugees, basically, about a future restoration of Israel. He talked about God's judgment and why it was fixing to happen and why uh, during the siege of Jerusalem they were fixing to be destroyed but he also talked about the future restoration of Israel. So the prophecy was very sweet to, to Ezekiel. It was good news that he was fixing to prophesy to the people. Yes, he did talk about the judgment coming, but he also spent a lot of time about the future and about how Israel would be revived and restored. So it was a sweet message for Ezekiel. But here, John is beginning, has been given a prophetic scroll also, a message for him to meditate on. He consumed it, and it tasted sweet at first, you know, but then it gets bitter in his stomach. In other words, John knew that this was good news. It's talking about the uh, restoration of Israel and how exciting it is in the last days, but it also is very sour in his stomach. In other words, he knew it meant some rough times. So what was this message that caused John to have a, a mixed feelings about this prophecy and a sour stomach? Well, we see it starting in 
the end of Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Then he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Now this thought keeps going on into Revelation chapter 11. So let's keep going. Revelation 11 verse 1, then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the outer courtyard for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in sackcloth and will prophesy during those 1260 days. So this scroll that tasted sweet to John, but later on it had a bitter message to him that he had proclaimed, involves the fact that even though the end days were about the Messiah coming and restoring Israel once and for all, and one people of God, it has some bad things that's going to happen beforehand. Namely, that the Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles, were going to trample over the city of God, Jerusalem very severely for another 42 months, three and a half years. And it's very precise. It says 42 months and 1260 days. Now, remember that the Jewish calendar is based on 30-day months. They have a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar like we do. So if you divide 30 into 1260, you come up with exactly 42 months. And so the prophecy is very precise, just like the prophecies in Daniel were. And it's saying that for three and a half years, three and a half years, 42 months, the Gentiles will be invading and trampling, in other words, taking over the city of Jerusalem. But there's something else going on during this interlude. Not only are the Gentiles going to be trampling over Jerusalem, there's two prophets that are called by God and arise to preach the gospel. Let's read about that. This is in Revelation chapter 11, verses 4 through 14. Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 4. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from the mouths of the prophets and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to send every kind of plague upon the earth as often as they wish. And when they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them. He will conquer them and kill them. And the bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city which is called Sodom, and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will come to stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered them, and they stood up. And terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice shouted from heaven, Come up here! And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. And the same hour there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 
7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone who did not die was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look now, the third terror is coming quickly. So during the first half of the time of Jacob's distress, during the trumpet judgments, these prophets will be preaching. And yes, Jerusalem will be under Gentile control, but these two witnesses, these two prophets are preaching the gospel of Jesus and his salvation, as well as impending judgment against all unbelievers. And I think their preaching is what helps the 144,000 Jewish people get saved and also spread throughout the world to spread the gospel even further. So God is making sure that anyone who wants to turn to Jesus, especially his remnant of Israel, the Jewish people will have an opportunity to be saved during this time of Jacob's distress. And this is part of that mysterious plan we talked about earlier that the angel had mentioned in Revelation chapter 10. Now note that these, these two prophets, these two witnesses, who are sharing the gospel, they also have the power to do miracles. Uh, they are allowed to call down hellfire from heaven to destroy anybody who tries to attack them. Uh, for three and a half years, God protects them and won't allow anybody to hurt them. And it says that they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and send every kind of plague upon the earth as often as they wish. So they're sending plagues, and some of the plagues that is mentioned here in Revelation chapter 11 is talking about blood. Well, that's very similar to one of the trumpets, isn't it? That is exactly what is going on in the first and second trumpets, where blood is coming down, hellfire is coming down and burning up part of the earth. Again, that goes back to the fire being called from heaven by the mouth of the prophets. But also, the second trumpet talks about that mountain of fire that we think most probably is a volcano that arises and turns a third of the sea to blood. And then the third trumpet, when a asteroid, a comet, an asteroid falls to the earth called wormwood and poisons a third of the water. So a lot of the plagues that are mentioned here by these witnesses are running uh, you know, coincidental to the plagues of the seven trumpets, the first six trumpets. So a lot of what the prophets, these two witnesses are proclaiming, match up perfectly with these trumpets. And so the whole world sees God judging them, but also they know it's God judging because these witnesses, these two prophets are saying so. Do they ignore their preaching? Yes, we've already talked about how a lot of them will probably ignore their preaching and ignore these first six trumpets and write it all off, especially the first four, write it all off as global warming or climate change. And so all the things that are happening in the first four trumpets, they're going to write off as climate change. They're ignoring what the prophets are saying. But these prophets are there preaching that this is judgment of God, trying to get people to convert. And many 
people do. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, I believe, will get saved. We know at least 144,000 Jewish people will get saved, but I think that is just a special group that's also used as missionaries throughout the world during this time. I think there will be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, both Jewish people and Gentile people, that realize Jesus is the Messiah and put their faith and trust in him and get saved during the first three and a half years of Jacob's distress. So who are these prophets then? Is there any way to know who they are? Well, prophet number one, most people think is Elijah. And the reason we think that is because of many Old Testament prophecies. You see, in Malachi 4, verse 5, he prophesied, he said this, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. So Malachi is giving a prophecy from God, and God spoke through Malachi and said, look, before the day of the Lord arrives, before uh, the millennial kingdom is set up, before the judgment of God and his wrath is poured out during this seven-year period of time, he's going to send us Elijah. And so right there at the beginning of this time, we're going to see these two witnesses arise, and I think one of them's Elijah. But it's not just the prophecy of Malachi that makes me think that. It is Jewish tradition in the Passover meal to have a fifth glass of wine, a fifth cup of wine that's poured. No one drinks of it. There's a series of four toasts that's made throughout the Passover meal. But there's a fifth one that is pointed to and remarked about. But they pour this glass of wine and they set it to the side. And they say that's for Elijah because they believe that Elijah will come before to proclaim the message before the Messiah comes to restore the kingdom. So before the Messiah comes to restore the kingdom, he'll be heralded and proclaimed as fixing to happen by the prophet of Elijah. And it's not just those two things that lead us to believe it's Elijah as being one of the prophets. Jesus himself said and verified this tradition of the Jewish people and the prophecy of Malachi. Listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 17. Now, this is after the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw uh, the Mount, you know, Jesus get transfigured, and they're coming down from the mountain afterwards, and they asked Jesus, why do the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, say that Elijah must come before you set up the kingdom? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus replied, Elijah is indeed coming first to set everything in order. But I tell you, he has already come. But he wasn't recognized, and he was badly mistreated. And soon the Son of Man will also suffer at their hands. Then the disciples realized he had been speaking of John the Baptist. So as they're walking down the mountain, they asked Jesus about this tradition, and they saw it every year during the Passover meal, so they asked him about it. And Jesus says, yes, indeed, Elijah will come before I restore the kingdom and set up the kingdom. But he said also this, he says, in a way, you can see that John the Baptist also came in the spirit of Elijah to kind of fulfill this prophecy because a lot of the John the Baptist was making the way straight for me to come. But just like they ignored John the Baptist and abused him and executed him, 
they're going to execute me too. Because this was part of God's plan, you know, we know this, to, for Jesus to die on the cross and pay for our sins. So yes, Elijah has what I like to call a split shift. Any of y'all who ever worked shift work knows what that means. You work a little bit, then you have to clock out and go home for a while. Then you have to come back that same day later on and work some more. A split shift. And working in the fire department, I had to do some split shifts. Well, it's the same thing that's going on with Elijah. He had his prophetic ministry in the Old Testament, uh, primarily with King Ahab, but he had a split shift. He was taken up into heaven. You can read about this in First and Second Kings, his ministry. He was taken up into heaven, and then he's going to come back sometime as one of the witnesses, I believe, and that will be his split shift also. That'll be the end of his shift, his ministry, where he's proclaiming, just like Malachi said, and just like Jesus said, proclaiming that the Messiah is fixing to come and set up the kingdom soon. So that's one prophet. Who's the second prophet? Well, a lot of people think the second prophet is Moses. And they base this on some of the plagues, for instance, turning the water to blood and all these other plagues that are mentioned. And, you know, Moses brought on the 10 plagues against Egypt to have the Jewish people set free when they were slaves. The Hebrew people were slaves to Egypt, to Pharaoh. So a lot of people think it's Moses. But they base it more on just that. They base it also on Matthew chapter 17. Again, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when Jesus went up to the mountain and the disciples saw him in his glorified body. Let me read a little bit. Matthew chapter 17, starting verse 1, and you'll see what happens. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance changed so that his face shone like the sun, and his clothing became dazzling white. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. So we see that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. Now, this shows us several things. Number one, anybody who says you're not conscious after you die, he needs to read this passage. You are conscious. You're aware of what's going on when you're up in heaven because here's Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. And who, what were they talking about? I don't know. But since he's fixing the head of the cross, I think perhaps that subject came up at least once. And they were probably encouraging him and trying to give him strength to go all the way to the cross for salvation of the whole world. So they're there talking to him. Whatever they were saying, we'll have to wait to get up to heaven to find out. But since it was Moses and Elijah, a lot of people think Moses is the other witness, the other prophet in chapter 11 of Revelation. But there's another theory about who this second prophet is. Some people think it's Enoch. You see, Enoch is the only other person mentioned in the Bible, especially a prophet, who didn't die. He was taken up to heaven just like Elijah. See, Enoch was a prophet, and he made a prophecy that Jude quotes a little bit about. But let's read uh, in Genesis chapter 5. All we know about Enoch that's written in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 21. 
When Enoch was 65 years old, his son Methuselah was born. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived another 300 years in close fellowship with God, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years in all. He enjoyed a close relationship with God throughout his life. Then suddenly he disappeared because God took him. So Enoch walked so closely with God that he was translated just like Elijah was. And interestingly enough, a lot of people think he was so close to God that because as a prophet, he knew when the flood that Noah had to deal with and build the ark for, he knew when that was going to occur because he named his son Methuselah. And a lot of language scholars have looked at that And they say Methuselah's name actually comes from two other word roots. And putting these two word roots together, it translates as his death shall bring. So he named his son Methuselah, meaning when he dies, it will come. The flood will come. That in itself would get you to walk closely with God, wouldn't it, brothers and sisters? So maybe that's why Enoch walked so closely with God. But I think he was probably already close with God to have understood that whole prophecy about Methuselah. In any case, Enoch was a righteous man and was so close to God that he was translated up into heaven. And therefore, a lot of people think he will be the other witness in Revelation chapter 11 because he and Elijah could therefore work a split shift. Neither one of them died, and so they could come back and finish up their lives on earth during this prophetic ministry. Which one is it? Is it Moses or Enoch that's going to be the partner of Elijah? I don't know. It could be someone else. We do know Moses died and was buried. Enoch wasn't. So I kind of lean towards Enoch. But be honest with you, only God knows for sure the identity of this other witness. I feel confident that the first one is Elijah. But the second one, we don't know for sure. Only God does. But if I was a betting man, I'd put my money on Enoch just because I like the parallel of the two split shifts working together as partners during these last days. But who knows? It'll be interesting to see. Now, how does the world respond to their ministry, these two prophets? Well, the world hates them. And it talks about the beast that comes from the pit. And we're going to talk about this beast later. This is a little bit of foreshadowing. But obviously, this is some type of world government or government leader. And he doesn't like what they're doing. And it declares war on them. In other words, they're trying to vilify them and stop them from their ministry. But they can't do anything for three and a half years. God protects them. But it says eventually that he will conquer them and kill them. And that their bodies will lay in the streets you know, hanging up there probably for all to see on the streets of Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting to me because I think what's going to happen is because of these judgments that are coming. A lot of people, like I said, the first four trumpets will write off as climate change. But the fifth and sixth trumpet, which are so severe about these demonic armies running rampage throughout the world and, and slaughtering thousands and thousands and thousands of people, When this happens, I think they're going to have so much hatred towards these two prophets because every time these trumpets are being blown, these prophets are saying, this is judgment from God. So eventually the government of some sort, I think it's the worldwide government, will rise up and through this governmental leader known as the beast, they're going to 
kill these two prophets. They'll execute them. And I think they'll keep them uh, strung up there so everyone can see. Because it says that all peoples, all tribes, languages, and nations will come to stare at their bodies. In other words, they're going to have all the cameras there, CNN, MSN, even probably Fox, and all these cameras, news cameras from all over the world, the BBC, all these world news agencies are going to be there, and they're going to see these prophets. They'll probably have been interviewed them many times, and they will see their destruction. They'll probably witness their execution. They'll probably be televised all across the world. And there'll be all kinds of reporters giving news reports over the next three and a half days about how the government is trying to um, recoup after all these awful judgments and how there's hope now because the two prophets that brought these judgments were destroyed, were killed. You see, they don't realize the prophets, the judgments, excuse me, the trumpets are coming from God. They're blaming it on these two witnesses. And that's how it is today, isn't it? We give the message of God, but God brings the judgment. But who do they blame? They blame us. Just like Jesus said, they hate you because they hate God. Well, so they're going to be there and they're going to be saying, oh, there's so much hope now because we've killed the two prophets. The beast did it. He killed these two prophets. And they'll have those guys, I think, in the backdrop of their camera work as they're going, uh, standing in front of the cameras, giving these news reports. And when that's going on, after three and a half days, God's going to show that, no, you didn't stop us. And he's going to raise them up to alive again, and they're going to be taken up into heaven, just like Jesus was. And this will declare to everybody, hey, you didn't stop a thing when you killed these two prophets, because the judgments are coming. And to capitalize on that, when he raises them up from the dead, it says this. It says, in the same hour, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city, which is Jerusalem again. Remember, they're all in Jerusalem when this is going on. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone who did not die was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So I think they will see these people, these two prophets, rise up from the dead, be taken to heaven. There'll be a huge earthquake in the Jerusalem. It's what I call the Jerusalem earthquake. Destroys a tenth of the city, kills thousands, 7,000 is what John records in the chapter 11. And the people that survive, they're going to look at all the things that have happened in the last three and a half years. These plagues, these judgments that have happened that we know as the first six trumpets. They're going to see the prophecies and the message that the two witnesses, these two prophets, Elijah and his partner, have proclaimed. And they're going to see the 144,000 spreading the gospel throughout the world. And all during that time, after this earthquake, there are finally many people who survived are finally going to fear God and praise God. It says they give God glory. They're going to get saved, in other words. And they're going to turn to God and receive salvation. And so the prophets will have a fantastic fruit of saved souls, salvation to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands who will get saved because of their testimony and because the testimony of the 144,000 people who wander the earth as witnesses and because people start turning to God because of these judgments. 
You see, that's God's grace, isn't it? God is always, even when he brings judgment, is to try and wake us up and reach into our hard hearts and, and soften those hearts up so we'll turn to him and get saved. And that's the beauty of our God. He always is trying to save us. Even during the time of Jacob's distress, during those first three and a half years, those trumpets are blowing and these judgments are coming, but these two witnesses are proclaiming loudly the gospel of Christ and why these judgments are coming. And the fruit of their preaching, 144,000 Jewish missionaries that we talked about earlier, are running around the world also spreading the gospel. And the gospel is there to make sure anybody who wants to get saved has a final chance. You see, for the whole world to see these guys and be so aware of what's going on, it will be televised, y'all. Can you imagine this not being televised in today's news environment? Oh, it'll be televised. And the cameras will be there when they rise up from the dead. And many people will get saved. God is good. And even when he disciplines us, even when he brings harsh things into our lives, it's for our best. It's for our good so that we will turn to him and find salvation. And we know that to be the case because Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He writes, he, referring to God, does not want anyone to perish, so he is giving more time for everyone to repent. Why is Jesus delayed coming so long? Because God loves us so much. He's giving people time to repent. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Why did the two prophets preach their message? Why were the 144,000 preaching their message during the first three and a half years of, the, of this time of Jacob's distress, during this time of the six trumpets? Why was all this going on? Because God loves people, and he's so full of love, he doesn't wish anyone to perish and go to hell. So he gives us more and more and more opportunities to turn to him and be saved. And many people do, as we read just a few minutes ago. Yeah, judgment's deserved when it comes. But our God's merciful, and he always provides a way of salvation for those who are willing to humble themselves, even then, even in the future with all this judgment, if they are willing to humble themselves and turn to Jesus, they will be saved. Because that is how great our God is, full of love and grace to all creation. Wow. So that's what's going on on earth during this time of the seven trumpets. Next time, we'll look at the seventh trumpet. And in the meantime, reflect on how gracious God is and look at your life and see what kind of hard times he's brought into your life, but used for good. And don't shake your fist at God over these hard times, but do what these people did. Praise him. Give him praise. Repent and give him praise. Turn your lives over to him because he's doing it to get you closer to him. Reflect on that in the days to come. And until next time, keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible.
Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link. Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.